Welcome to the Big Mike Fun Podcast, where you learn about advanced wealth building strategies from real estate investing to creating massive ROI and secure retirement profits. So pour yourself a cup of coffee, grab a notepad, and lean in. Because Big Mike has got the life starting now. Welcome to the Big Mike Fun Podcast. I'm the Big Mike. Mike Zlatnik. And today it is my pleasure and a privilege to welcome my good friend, Daniel Marcus. Hi, Daniel. Hey, Mike. How are you? Thank you for the invitation. Super excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Daniel is a, is, a, is a good friend and he's also an executive coach. I work with Daniel. He helps me uh, scale up and grow the business. I'm really excited from that perspective. But before we talk about that scaling up and business growth, would you be so kind as to talk a little bit about Daniel? Where do you live, your family, kids, cats, pets, all that good stuff? So uh, I'm originally from Mexico. I was born in uh, Mexico, in Monterey, Mexico. I grew up in Mexico City. I've been living 18 years in the U.S., uh, Austin, Texas mostly. And I'm an entrepreneur. I've been an entrepreneur for 24 years, and I've uh, built and scaled companies for the last 24 years most of the time in the CEO position and really enjoy the impact uh, that you could have as an entrepreneur. Um, I, I just believe it's a, it's an amazing privilege. Um, and today what I do is I help entrepreneurs do two things. Be able to scale their impact, do what you do in a bigger way, in a more impactful way, and two, reduce the drama of the operation. Uh, I've seen a lot of entrepreneurs that they make a lot of money, they have a great, great impact, thousands of employees, but then when you see their personal life and their their life behind their company is not something they're proud of. So how can they be proud on, on both sides? Yeah, that's awesome. That's a great way to uh, to put it. So let's explore this a little bit further. Uh, obviously, you're trying to grow uh, without uh, sacrificing family and, and personal life, which is critical balance uh, for most people. And it's difficult to imagine growth without a good balancing act between personal life and business life. So how do you do this? Just let's go to the basics. How, how do you start working with folks? Um, and uh, what are your basic initial steps? So there's there's several principles. Uh, the first one is deliberate practice. Um, ima- imagine you and I one day said, hey, you know what? We're, we're kind of gaining weight and we want to do some exercise. So let's run a marathon together. So we put a marathon in the books in six months. And I wake up and I try to go running the next day and it's better and whatever. And I do kind of my plan. And then I go through the, to running the marathon in six months. But you, Mike, you said, hey, I've never run a marathon. I have no idea. I'm going to hire a coach. And then you hire a coach and say, hey, coach, I want to run a marathon. Or you buy a course online or something. And they give you a plan and say, hey, day one, you have to run three miles. Day two, you have to run five miles. Day three, you have to rest. No, no, no exercise. Then you have to do this with your foot. And they give you a plan. And you follow that plan deliberately. Um, most likely, you're going to do better than I in the marathon because you followed a plan or something that works. So we always go there. Um, and we try to always find hey, any problem or opportunity you're having or anyone's having. Someone already went through it, uh, figure out how to overcome it, and wrote a methodology, a book, a course, or something around it. So whenever we find a problem, we, we always ask who. Who has that problem? Who has had the problem in the past and how they fix it? That's number one. And the second one is books. It's like 99% of the world's already invented. We always invent 1% on top of 99. So instead of reinventing the wheel, finding that wheel and just follow that wheel. 
So uh, if you're seeing this in video, I have a lot of business book on my site. Another book is here and the book is here. And if you see my floor, by the way, I'm full of books around my floor. Um, but but I it's that that's what I do. I said, hey, what's the right thought leader course book? What's the right issue having? And then figure out what's the best path. And then adapt the path and help the entrepreneurs and the CEOs go through the process uh, right. Um, and that usually helps a lot. So, so deliberate practice and following the right plan. Um, you could do something very deliberate, but if you follow the wrong plan, your response is not going to be great. So find the right plan and then follow it discipline. That's exactly what I do. Yeah, that's great. Uh, even great athletes, the best of the best athletes in the world, they have coaches. Uh, this is just justification that everyone needs a coach at every level, wherever they're at. When they little league, they get a little league coach. When they get to the minor league, they get minor league coach. And when they get to the major league, they get major league coach. And when they get best of the best and they hit home runs like Aaron Judge, they need a special home run hitting coach. So uh, your services are great, greatly appreciated from that perspective. And you absolutely, my experience, again, working with you, um, having you as a coach helps me quite a, quite a lot. Um, every time I have a problem, uh, I can bring it up and we, we solve it together. And having that that, that that person to bounce your ideas off helps quite a bit. Obviously, folks can have boards of directors and a lot of people. One of the biggest challenges with CEOs is an expression, it's lonely on top. Having no coach is very difficult. So uh, value of a coach is critical. And you're right, having the right plan and the right coach makes all the difference. So let's go to some problem solving. Can you give us some examples of the problems you help folks solve? I mean, anything that comes to mind, obviously, without disclosing uh, confidential information, some really cool that you've been able to help them with recently, any so, one of your clients. So let, let, let's, uh, and this is something that happens all the time. Uh, so I'll tell you kind of, you, people go to a doctor and say, hey, doctor, I'm sick. And the doctor says, why do you believe you're sick? Well, I have a fever, so I need, I'm sick. My, my body's reacting to something. Yeah, you're right. That's what the body does, right? Whenever you get sick, you get a fever. But then you tell the doctor, give me the strongest medicine. And the doctor could give you a very strong medicine. They could even kill you. So they need to ask you all these follow-up questions to understand where you are and what sickness you have. And if, if you have a diarrhea or you have uh, uh, your nose is blocked or all your, your throat is hurting, and ask all these questions, really understand. So whenever we come to a company, that's the first thing, right? Really understand what's the stage and the and, and of the company and what challenges are having. And let me kind of walk through here in the model. Um, like if you have a baby of two years old and a teenager of 18, the attention, the education, the food, everything is different. So we first try to understand where the company's at. And usually people are just seeing the company in their own lens. And we have a very wide lens because we see thousands of companies every year. And I love this conversation with, because I'm talking with a, a founder entrepreneur for the first time. And they said, but you don't get it. My case is different. And I was like, yeah, but you don't get it. Every company with 50 employees, they usually have 80% the same issues and probably 20% are different. So we first identify where they are in stages. And, and we understand there's really four distinct stages uh, in every company that scales. Um, and then... There's three areas that we work on. Focus on you, on the leader of the company, then focus on the team, and then focus on the company. People said, I want to build a great company. And I was like, you cannot really build a great company. You could build a great team, 
and your team is going to build a great company for you. So you have to build a great team. But before you build a great team, you have to become a great leader yourself or a leader that people want to follow and they want to work with. Um, so we work on those three levels on the four stages. And once we pinpoint where they are, we say, okay, you have a problem of stage three of infrastructure or strategy. And then we start working exactly there. So it's really, really important to understand their main pain, their stage, and what's creating the, the biggest drama. And like typical theory, theory of constraints, we try to identify the constraint that is the hardest or the one that is creating the most impact and drama. As an example, one of the methodologies that we implement the most is scaling up. And scaling up has a strategy component, and people want to go to strategy immediately because they love talking about strategy. It's very sexy to talk about strategy, and it's very fun to talk with your coach about strategy. But I said, hey, if I start talking about strategy, you have such a bad execution and you have so much drama on the execution that you won't be able to even think about strategy. Or if we come out strategy, you won't be able to implement it because you don't know how to execute. So we have to fix the execution first to give you a better muscle of execution. And then you could fix strategy. And here's a, a saying that I follow a lot, that you have to give people or teach people what they want so they could give you the right to teach them what they need. So usually an entrepreneur or someone comes with a very deep problem that you have to solve that, but probably you just give them a painkiller on that. So the, the stress and drama lowers. And then you go and fix the main problem. So if you have a fever, we don't give you a tempera or something just to lower the fever. We try to understand what's creating the fever. But if your fever goes above 101, you're going to be so tired and you won't be able to think how to fix it. So you have to kind of contain the fever and be able to keep that under control and then go and fix the root inside the company. And by the way, most of the companies, they have a people problem. If you ask me what's our big, biggest issue, people. If you have the right people, you're going to build an amazing strategy. If you have the right people, you're going to have a great execution. But if you don't have people, nothing's going to happen. So we usually... Just remove the biggest pain and then start working in the right team, in the right time, the right structure, alignment, priorities, and that will give you openness to everything else. Yeah, this is very powerful. Uh, like like in the classic model, you got to make sure that there are the right people in the bus and then the right, right seats. And uh, this is exactly what uh, you help folks with. And you're absolutely right. When there's a pain point, that's the fever. It's the symptoms. Uh, and if you don't treat the symptoms initially, that th that will cause enough uh, grief that Press people can yes. address the real issue. That's correct. You have to treat the symptoms first, and then look at the root cause. So it makes makes total sense. But and you don't eliminate with... the symptoms. You don't eliminate them. You just have to lower it and control it before you start working on the sickness. That's right. So what are the four stages you mentioned uh, of company growth? So I believe stage one is a startup. And you should have around one to five employees. You should be able to, to confirm your uh, product market fit or the strategy of your business between one to five employees. And here's what happens. Usually people build a business plan, structure or not structure, but they have a business plan before they build a business. They have to validate all their assumptions in their business plan in stage one. And like Mike Tyson said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. So when they get punched in the mouth on the first stage, 
we help them really confirm their assumptions and adapt the business model so it's a business model that is scalable. Then you get to stage two, that is six to 15 employees, more or less. And stage two, you're kind of setting the next stage of pillars of building a scalable company. But here I work a lot with entrepreneurs to help them define if they want to go to a stage three and build a scale-up or keep a lifestyle business. I believe the big, the best balance for lack of drama and income and quality of life, it's 10 to 15 employees, 10 to 12. It's great. I've seen a lot of entrepreneurs, 10 to 12 employees. They make a million, million and a half for them, and they could still take two months vacation. If you pass the 15 employees, now you have started putting your first layer of management, and that creates a lot of drama in the organization. So I strongly recommend most of the companies stay on stage two, build a lifestyle business, and they create a business that will give them good cash flow with a good quality of life. And I believe that's stage two. The problem that people don't understand that, they want to go to stage three, they have a really tough stage two. And by the time they come to stage three, they're completely depleted. The stage needs more money, infrastructure, technology, and they're not able to implement and they go under. We see a lot of companies that they, they scale prematurely and then they have a lot of issues. But stage three, uh, we work on them and that's a scaling stage, by the way. Once you kind of cross the 15, 20 employees, that's when you start scaling. Um, now you have a couple of managers or leaders, you redo your strategy, your, your um, org chart, and that's when you start scaling. And the biggest problems in a scaling company is infrastructure first. You have to invest a lot in infrastructure. You have to buy technology and SAP and all these kinds of things. And then leadership. Now you have to build your first line of defense of leaders. And you have to hire leaders and train them for leadership. And that's very expensive and it takes time. So usually what we call a valley of death of stage three is between 20 to 70 employees. And it's a really, really, really tough stage in entrepreneur. Because you don't have enough managers, you have to invest a lot or, or, or invest in people that are bigger than the organization needs today, but you have to overhire them at this stage and you have to pay them more money and that kind of kills your margins and stuff. And they have to invest a lot in, in infrastructure. And that, I, we see companies between 70 to, to 20 to 70 employees that at the same time, they're changing their company uh, infrastructure platform, whatever, they're implementing SAP or NetSuite or all these other uh, RFPs. And they have four or five implementations, really high implementations. And they don't have enough cash. They don't have enough people. They don't know how to do it. And it's a lot of mess. Once you cross the 70, that's pure scaling. Now you, you know your business model. You know your selling process, everything. And now it's all about executing and be very, very efficient the way you execute. And then once you cross around 250 employees, in most of the companies, you enter uh, the consolidation phase. And the consolidation phase, you have to be a change management and you kind of start getting innovation. Once you cross the 200, 250 employees, people have suffered so much on stage two and three that they kind of get into a comfort zone. And that's what Salim Ishmael believes that we build a uh, immune system to keep us alive but that immune system doesn't allow us to invent and be creative anymore. 
and we get into a consolidation. So we have, have to help the company get out of this consolidation and then continue to innovate and go to the next level. So that's kind of where we see the stages and the challenges people have in each of the stages. Yeah, that's very insightful. Um, most entrepreneurs obviously get stuck in a small stage and that they, they wind up building good lifestyle business in, in, in stage two. Uh, it's probably good enough for most people. But you're absolutely right. Um, the, the scaling up stage is a very pain, painful stage because of the reasons that you have to, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's money and people, right? It's systems, processes, money and people. Money and people, 100%. <laughs> and, um, yeah, it's, it's a journey. It's a fun journey. And, and thank you for sharing all this. We, <laughs> we happen to fall in the stage two uh, on our journey. And um, after this conversation, I'm not really sure if we want to go in stage three. We're pretty happy in stage two. It's a fun, it's a fun stage if you, if you build a good lifestyle business and you're enjoying what you're doing. But at, We're at going the end to get of the to that day, conversation when the time is right. Yeah, when the time is right, you have to find uh, yeah the the right mix of people to to go into into the stage three. So that's correct. I uh, appreciate correct. that. Um, now, how do um, how do most folks that go from stage two to stage three uh, finance? I don't know if, what's been your experience because it, it's a big big jump, and you absolutely right. Hiring people, especially in this environment. When the labor market is very, very tight and finding talent is hard and you wind up paying a lot for, for, for great people and finding these people and, and getting them on board and selling them your vision is not easy. So what do most people do? Do they raise capital? Do they grow organically? I'm just curious, uh, how do you look at this? Is it better to get some external investors, raise capital and have be well capitalized, uh, but diluted a little bit? versus so, so companies companies should do two things uh first is getting some venture capital if you have kind of a technology company or that or they get a loan uh, or some growth capital in some way <coughs> sorry for that <coughs> sorry for that um so you have to get some growth capital and finance that growth in in a certain way and mostly because investment in infrastructure and people for the next level. And the other thing they do is they give stock options and say, hey, we're at 10 million now, we could get to 50 million, we need your help, but you're you're worth in the market probably 300,000, we could not pay you 300,000. We'll give you 150, 200 of uh, salary plus 100,000 in stock. If we're able to get the company from 10 million to 50 million, you're gonna share part of the growth. As an example, in Growth Institute, when we go to that level, we put 10% of the company aside in a stock option plan. And once you cross the year working with us, then you start getting stock options with the company. And the stock options, for you to gain all the stock options, you have to work for four years in the company. So it's been a great way for us to be able to attract people we couldn't afford at the moment and be able to share the growth with them. And the ones that have really like the idea and like the company and align core values and everything, they're super excited because they said, hey, it's the only company that really understands my value and is sharing with me the growth and the value I'm building inside the company. Um, and today, it's very easy to build a stock option plan. There are real option plans or what they call phantom stock, very simple model to implement, and you could share part of the growth. And I'll give you an example that happened recently. Um, 
we have a lot of team members in Latin America and they've never heard about stock options and everything. So we kind of told them what the stock shops were and all that, and they work with us. And one person resigned recently because she had a job offer that she really wanted to. And so I called her and said, hey, thank you very much for working for us for some years, blah, blah. We kind of had our exit call. And at the end said, hey, you have this amount of stock. I'll be happy to buy it from you at the price of the company today. And she was like, well, no. And I was like, but you don't want to work here anymore. And she was like, yeah, but I would like to keep my savings with you guys. I already gained that company. I'm going to work there because I like the job there. But my money, I want to keep it here. I trust that you guys are going to grow. So I keep my stock. I was like, okay. And she has her stock of the company. And she gets a report every quarter how we're doing, and she's a stockholder. And by yeah, the way, but... she's a huge advocate of us in her own new company and, and in her new environment. Yeah, there is the good old wisdom. Don't hire employees. Don't hire consultants. Don't hire uh, brings stakeholders. And the moment somebody is a stakeholder, they, they act differently. They think differently. That's um, and I completely subscribe to this theory. Having spent years in the technology world, that, that's always a great motivator. Uh, in the technology world, it's almost you can't get away without it. If you don't offer stock options or something along those lines, most folks just won't come to work for you because they, they, everyone in, in, the, in that world is looking for a big payday when the company is successful. Even though the chances of a big success are not that high, still th that dream and that uh, part ownership uh, makes a big difference in the way folks treat uh, they don't treat the work that was work but they treat it like family and usually you're able to to attract the most qualified people in the, in the industry because you're executing at that level the ones yeah, are really worth it they want to go to companies that really value their work and their their impact in the company makes sense so now we we're moving into this area that I wanted to kind of chat a little bit with you about. So how do you value companies when you when you uh, bring new folks on board? You're giving them stock options based on some value of the company. How do you value small private companies? I'm just curious: is there formal methodology? Are there consultants that do it? Uh, so or, there's, uh, there's three there's three ways to value a company. Uh, one is by assets and how much are the assets worth, and that was a lot in the past. Today, it's very little used. That, that's not very used. The most common use uh, in the industry is uh, discounted cash flow or, or X amount of uh, times your EBITDA. And say, hey, a company in my industry is worth six to eight times EBITDA. So if our EBITDA today is one million, the probably the company is worth, let's say, eight million. If we're able to take EBITDA to two million, probably the, worth, the company is worth 16 million, right? So what companies do is they get some parameters and KPIs aligned to evaluation and say, hey, the company will rebuy stock from you at six times EBITDA. And that's kind of the evaluation we move forward. But then you have the strategic exit, and that's the ones I like. And I'm helping today a couple of my clients to sell their company, and we just do strategic sales. We don't do... Um, uh, we don't do um, financial sales. And by the way, if you understand private equity, that's exactly what they do. They buy you or buy a chunk of your company in a financial transaction like at EBITDA, and then they sell it strategically. 
uh, and usually they make a lot more money. So let me kind of, let, let me tell this. I'm going to tell two stories just to put this together, and I'll try to be brief. First one is something we call Rembrandt's in the attic. Um, imagine you and I uh, are going to see a house, and I go and walk the house, and I said, great house, I'm going to offer a million dollars. And then you walk the house and you see all the rooms and everything. And then you said, hey, I'm going to go to the attic. I won't see what's up there. And you go to the attic and you see that there's a Rembrandt in the attic. You're like, well, the house as is with all the furniture. They say, yeah, yeah, the house as is, you're going to get it. And you were like, hmm, but that Rembrandt is worth like $5 million. The house worth a million, but the Rembrandt's worth five. So you're the only one that knows there's a Rembrandt in the attic. And then when you come and offer, you're probably going to offer one and a half million, two million dollars. And I was like, but the worth the house is worth a million. I, I make a million, you overbeat me and you win the house. But then the house is really worth six million, probably worth one million of the house and five million of the Rembrandt. So how can you find the Rembrandt in the attic that people will value the Rembrandt? So now let me go to story number two. Imagine me, Daniel, I invent a great phone. And I'm gonna imagine the iPhone, but it's not invented by Apple, it's invented by me. And first year, it's, it's a great technology. First year, I do $10 million. 20, second year, $20 million. Third year, I do $50 million in revenue, and I'm off the roof, just happy with my invention. How much is that company worth to me? If I'm doing $50 million in year three, I'm super happy. I'd probably say, hey, if you pay me two times revenue, three times revenue, I'm like bouncing off the walls happy. And people said, well, you're doing $50 million. I'll pay you three times revenue. That's a great valuation. And I go out of, I sell the company and I'm really happy. But imagine Apple comes to buy it and they brand the iPhone iPhone. They put it the Apple brand and they send it in the Apple distribution network. How much are they going to do the first year of that phone? Probably yeah, two billion. billion, three billion. How much are they willing to pay for that company? Probably a billion, right? So probably the, the company is worth, and by the way, imagine that I'm doing 50 million, probably three or 4 million EBITDA. Six times EBITDA is probably worth 20 million. You pay me two times revenue, I'm bouncing off the walls happy. But for Apple, it's probably worth one or two billion. So we just do strategic sales. So we work with companies three years before they want to launch an average or the, before they want to sell. And we understand what are the Rembrandt's idiastic then we take it to a investment banker. We take it to market. Just said, hey, we have a company in this industry that they have all of this and try to understand what the Rembrandts in the attic are in the market. And once we validate that, we come and we grow those Rembrandts in the attic for the next three years. And instead of having one Rembrandt, we probably have two or three Rembrandts in the attic. And then when you come back to market three years after, the company is worth three, four, five times more what we started working three years before. And that's how we work with the evaluations. That work to do. Yeah, that's that's very cool. I, I love the uh, comparison. It, it is very powerful. And strategic versus financial sales, the evaluations are drastically different. And and in this world, uh, a lot of companies try to present themselves um, as a technology company or financial technology fintech, and then the evaluations are not based on EBITDA or they're based on uh, revenues. They're based on, I guess, the potential to grow the revenues based on the outlook of whatever the product or the service. So from that perspective, what you're doing makes uh, a lot of sense. So uh, completely, completely in agreement with you. And it's it's a very powerful um, 
it's a very it's a lot of value for the companies that doesn't see themselves as a uh, strategic sale, but only financial sale. If you can make them look like a strategic sale, so makes a lot of sense. Um, we'll probably have to do part two. This is just awesome so far. It's great, uh, but we you know, I don't want to keep this episode going on for for a long time. So we're going to wrap up. It's a great it's a great discussion, but we'll have to do part two. So I appreciate in advance your time. So thank you kindly. How would folks get a hold of you? If they, they heard this episode, they wanted to start working with you, with, with your Growth Institute, what's the website, how how to reach out? Uh, growthinstitute.com. That's my company that we teach uh, all of this uh, in online courses all over the world with coaching and helping you implement. Uh, my personal website is danielmarcos.co. Um, and then in all social media, uh, Facebook, LinkedIn, whatever, um, Instagram, I'm, I'm everywhere. Just thank Google you so much, Daniel. Daniel. Yes. Uh, thank you for sharing. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Let's do episode two. But for, for now, I'd like to say this. All good things must come to an end today. So does this episode. <laughs> thank you, amigo. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Big Mike Fun Podcast. To receive your copy of Mike's How to Choose a Smart Real Estate Fun Book, head to BigMikeFun.com or visit Amazon and type Mike's slot name. Keep listening and keep investing Big Mike style. See you on the next episode.